This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from SubChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I asked the librarian if they had any books on paranoia. She whispered, they're right behind you. My co-host is John Pazden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and people say he's a contrarian, but he disagrees. In this episode, John and I are talking about slang in Chinese. Interviews with Kyle Anderson, who speaks Chinese and a few other languages too. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hi everybody, my name is John Pazden and I am in the city of Shanghai, China. How's everybody doing? All right, John. Uh, before we kick in today, uh, give us a quick update uh, on Shanghai. You're on lockdown, right? Yeah, I've been on lockdown since April 1st. Haha, ha, great joke. And uh, we have enough food, so that's good. But it's, uh, yeah, not fun. We're doing okay. Some people are having a much harder time than us, that's for sure. Like, uh, especially people that depend on, you know, working every day to have enough money to live. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a hard time for a lot of people. And I think also those people who may not be so technologically inclined, you know, look at find food and purchase that online, right? Yeah, so old people can be very rough on them. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people either can't work online, so they can't work, or, yeah, like you said, they just have trouble getting food, so it's rough. Well, all the best to you, John, and, and for everyone there in Shanghai. Thank you. Okay, so today our topic is slang, specifically Learning Chinese slang in your studies. Should you do it? When should you do it? How should you do it? That kind of stuff. Chances are you use slang in probably your everyday conversation. But let's delve into this a little bit in Chinese about getting into slang. Yeah, so when you think about it, slang is really nothing more than just new words. So um, if you think about like a rainforest where there's like all these new species of animals popping up here and there and some of them just get wiped out to get eaten, volcano erupts and the whole new population of frogs is gone. You know, words are kind of like that too. So um, sometimes words pop up and they don't last long. Like maybe it's a slang that comes up during the, the Shanghai lockdown of 2022 and then that's over and it kind of disappears. Um, but then some slang sticks around and then eventually it becomes so entrenched in the language that it ends up in dictionaries and then it's not slang anymore. I think a good example of that, John, would be like the word selfie. That didn't really exist 10 years ago, but you know now it's in dictionaries. Yeah, I think a lot of us were hoping that word would not stick around, but it did. <laughs> yeah, I like that word. But there are a lot of other slang words which don't really stick around. Uh, and I'm not, they're not just words, right? There, there could be phrases or sayings. Exactly. And some of them, they kind of pop up in spoken language. But nowadays, a lot of this slang comes from the internet. So it's kind of weird because some slang appears online. You see people using it in these online conversations, but then they don't really say it much um, in their daily lives, either because the people they talk to wouldn't know what they're talking about. They have their own little, you know, their own little group on their online forums or because it just doesn't really work uh, when they when they speak face to face, like because there's English letters thrown in or just because no one will understand them because it just sounds so weird. I think it's no different than like, uh, you know, jobs or whatever, you know, every industry or 
uh, profession has its own unique vocabulary and, and words. But, you know, this is a little more different. It's not necessarily just tied to professions, right? It could be lifestyles, you know, age groups, uh, you know, interests and focus areas. All right. So that's the thing. So this is a multifaceted thing going on here. So when you have new slang, new vocabulary coming into the language, sometimes it's kind of confined to a certain age group, a certain generation. Sometimes it's confined to sort of a domain, like maybe, uh, you know, art students or musicians or, you know, project managers in this one IT company, you know, and then other times it's, it's kind of confined to a physical, like a geographical location. Um, so there are so many facets to it. And then most slang you just are never even aware of until it gets big enough that it kind of spills out into the mainstream, right? Yeah, that's right. And I would even say for us as uh, L2 learners, second language learners of Chinese, we're going to become even less aware of these things, right? Because <laughs> these are typically more advanced uh, words or things that you're going to be learning in the language, which can come and go pretty easy. Right. So for a learner, if you're not in the environment and you don't have direct exposure to like new slang, then probably your your best way to be exposed to it would be new movies, new TV shows, or some other kind of, you know, like podcast or video type media. So it's possible to get it, but that's often not the kind of thing that you're really going to have much hope of getting exposed to until you're in the somewhat advanced levels of your studies. All right, now let's take this back to um, the idea of studying Chinese and then the role slang plays. So obviously slang can be a little bit annoying, like if you hear something and you want to look it up and it's not in the dictionary because it's slang. Um, and... That's not something we can really help you with. But what I want to do is talk about how slang kind of falls into three categories in terms of like usefulness and urgency of your studies. And I think uh, Jared will probably recognize these, uh, these three types from his own experiences learning Chinese in China. So the first one I want to talk about is you're not looking for it and then you just keep hearing something. And so it comes to you. And it's like, I keep hearing this word. It's not in the dictionary. What does that mean? And you ask someone and they tell you and you're like, oh. And then after that, you hear it all the time. And it's just like, bam, it's it's so easy to master because it came to you. This is a really good point, John. I recall in times of working in my bakery back in Shanghai that, you know, that my staff would. I, I Later on, I, I found out uh, over process of times that they'd actually created some words <laughs> or sayings to refer to different things we had in the bakery or in sometimes different processes that we did. And I thought that these were like words, like, and, and I remember once uh, trying to uh, talk, train a new employee and, and, and tell them some things. And I was, and I was repeating you know, just a couple of these words and they were kind of like looking really confused. And, and I remember looking it up in the dictionary. I'm like, wait, this isn't in the dictionary. This isn't in Placo. <laughs> now that was very specific, right? Okay. Slang, you know, this is more of like an industry term, but yeah, there's been other examples like that. I can think of John where it's like, man, yeah, you're just like, I, I, I understand the word. I understand the meaning of what this is going on here, but, but I, I, maybe I'm, it's not something I can go teach someone else. Yeah. And sometimes it happens face to face in conversation. And then sometimes it happens like in text, like in WeChat. So, you know, the, the internet version of it, but in, in both cases, it's it's kind of nice because it comes to you. You you can easily confirm that, yeah, people say this, and you learn it, and then you keep hearing it, and it just becomes your own. There, there was a dark side of this. I recall one John one time, I there was this guy I was chatting back and forth with, and he sent me a message, 
And there was like these three characters. I mean, I just couldn't understand what he was saying. I put it through translators. I looked, I asked like two Chinese friends and finally we determined it was just a typo. So it wasn't a new slang at all. <laughs> it was just a typo. Yeah, so typos are not new slang. That's, uh, that's something you have to watch out for. But uh, anyway, let me move on to the second type of slang. So the second type is slang where uh, maybe it doesn't come to you, but you have a friend or a teacher who's like, oh, yeah, like nowadays we all say this. You should learn this. And so you'd never come across it. And you're like, everybody says this? Like I use WeChat all the time and I never see this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, everyone says it. You need to learn it. And then you learn it. And then after you learn it, you see it everywhere. Um, you know, this isn't a phenomenon mm. that's exclusive to slang, but um, it's especially noticeable for slang because you don't learn it in your Chinese textbook. You don't learn it in your, you know, your HSK course or whatever. It's not in Playco. But then after you learn it, you see it everywhere. You know, John, I guess I could pontificate on why that is, why you don't notice it. But what, what it would be, uh, I guess, more of your educated explanation of that? Well, I mean, you don't really notice it because you don't know what it is. And then you can also often just rationalize like, oh, it means this. And your mind just makes up something. And if it's not some like totally bizarre type of word that really stands out, then it can easily get overlooked repeatedly. Hmm. I also think that sometimes, you know, your brain is inclined to just gloss over or skip things you don't understand, right? You just kind of... Yeah, especially when it's not really important. That's your brain trying to be efficient and just get to the point, right? Focusing on meaning. Okay, and then finally, the third kind, which is kind of a problem. The third kind is the slang where, you know, you don't know it exists. You go out and you read about it and you're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. And then like you never hear it. You have no way of using it or like maybe you use it once and people are like, ah, you know that word. And then like you never use it again. So (laughs) slang like that can be uh, can be tricky because was it really worth learning? Not just that. It's also like I think when you come across stuff like that, it's like, are you really using it correctly? You know, it's like, does anyone know? Yeah, maybe nobody really knows, or maybe it's like you know, people in a very focused area or you know this type of lifestyle or whatever would use that word. Yeah, and just keep in mind that um, a lot of these slang terms, they're not around forever. So if you spend a lot of time learning um, really obscure slang terms, like number one, you better be pretty advanced because if you're not advanced, you're 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 ignoring a whole bunch of really important stuff. And then two, like, uh, is it really worth the time? Like, if you really love it, okay. But if you don't really love learning about slang, then there's probably more, you know, effective ways you could be using your time to learn your Chinese and improve your fluency. You know, one other thing I, I mentioned about using slang is that it's just not always about knowing the word and being able to use it correctly. I think a lot of slang also is in, in the delivery uh, in my reference, of course, here is the United States. But, you know, if you took someone from, you know, South Central L.A. and you put them in Wichita, Kansas, uh, you know, how they might speak and the slang that they're going to use is going to be very different and maybe <laughs> have a hard time connecting with, you know, people they would meet. Um, you know, so it, it's, you know, it's the accents and, and the whole candor and the, the cadence and uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are baked into, uh, using slang. It's not just the language alone. And you have the added complication that people from LA, their slang shows up on TV and in movies, but the slang that shows up on TV and in movies is a little behind because there's a lag, right? So then you have this weird effect of like other parts of the country knowing the LA slang, but it's the LA slang from like a year ago or two years ago. 
And so it's, yeah, it's this weird mishmash and it happens in China too. Okay, so we just talked about like three different types of slang. The slang that comes to you, the, the slang that you look for and find, and the kind that is like treasure hunting, like it's super rare and you may or may not get to ever actually use it. Uh, and so what I want to just talk about really quickly is what level you are and then how this is relevant to your level. So if you're a beginner, elementary, this range, then that would be roughly the first kind where if the slang doesn't come to you, it's not knocking on your door and bothering you, then you really don't need to spend a lot of time seeking out slang. You should really focus on the absolute basics. Good practical advice. And I'm sure you can guess what's coming next. If you're intermediate hmm. and you're interested in slang and maybe you spend a lot of time on WeChat, chatting online, maybe you're starting to try to understand a few TV shows or something, well, then that's where seeking out some very common, useful uh, general usage type slang can really pay off and it can can make the language kind of come alive. It's like this little spice that, 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 you know, makes everything more lively and more interesting. Well, John, what about the third kind of slang? I think you've probably figured that one out, Jared. Could it be, John, that this advanced slang is something that's more appropriate for advanced learners? The obscure slang, right? That's right. Obscure slang. All right. Well, see, here's the thing. Like, yes, if you're advanced, then um, you're definitely best suited to seeking out the more obscure slang and actually making use of it. But that doesn't mean that just because you're advanced, like you have to learn all the slang, right? You you can't learn it all. And keep in mind that so much of it is just going to slowly fall out of usage. So like you kind of got to make a call. How much time do you want to spend on that? Yeah, I think something that's important is keeping this in perspective with your own native language. Uh, obviously, you do not know all the slang in English or um, or whatever language your mother tongue is. You're going to be out of the loop when you're put in certain situations. And so I think, you know, when you're really, if you want to try to learn slang, it's like, hey, what once this is, comes back to just some of the basics of like learning the language of like, what's relevant to you? What are you actually going to use? Are you, what are you going to encounter? So if you're going to be working like in the restaurant industry or whatever, you know, and you can learn words that are going to be used in a restaurant or and it's not just restaurant. There could be slang that are particularly pertains to that. And there's all sorts of slang that's going to be if you're watching a lot of movies and you know shows and stuff like that, there's going to be slang that's going to be pertaining to all those different types of genres and different type of situations that you uh, would talk about in Chinese. Yeah, and there's also this this issue of authenticity, right? Like, take, for example, English, American English. All right, so Jared and I, we're no longer, you know, spring chickens. We're not in our 20s. We don't go around calling stuff lit and saying no cap. Like, maybe we've heard this this new slang, but it's just not our generation. <laughs> hey, you, you don't. Yeah. You don't, John. Yeah, Jared tries really hard. Right. But it's it's not our generation, and it it's going to come across as a little inauthentic if you start trying to use the slang that really isn't your group. And, of course, the same is true for learning Chinese. I mean, if you're 50 years old and you're trying to learn how the 20-year-olds, you know, talk at the gym, I mean, I guess if you're at the gym all the time, maybe it makes sense, but in a lot of cases, it's just not going to make sense, right? It's not authentic. Absolutely. And this gets back to, I'm saying, what is relevant to you? And so you don't be, don't try to be something you're not. Like I said, that's going to be like the, uh, the guy from central LA showing up in Wichita, Kansas, and, you know, trying to use all the slang that he's you know familiar with. 
All right. And I, I think we've we've hit most of the good advice here for learning slang, but I just wanted to give one example of a of a slang term which I've seen rise and fall while I've been in Shanghai, and it's kind of cool. So that term, and I'm sure you know it too, Jared, is gay li. Uh-huh. And literally it means like give power, but it means like uh, you know, support. And I remember, I think it was 2010, because it was the year I started uh, all set learning. But uh, in 2010, it was everywhere. Not only was everyone saying it and yeah. everyone using it like a crazy fad, but it was appearing in ads. Like, if, I feel like every company was like, oh, this word is so hot. We have to use it in our ad. And it was getting like super annoying. And so it was everywhere. And so I was really wondering, is this new slang term really going to stick around? And so what happened was that it kind of burnt out, like it was too hot and, and it definitely faded, but it never disappeared. And so gay Lee is definitely a word you still see, but it's not like a hot slang term anymore. It's just this word that kind of eventually found its place. And um, so it's one that is worth learning. It was once very hot and everywhere, but it's no longer that case, but it didn't fade away. And if it's not in dictionaries now, it will be eventually because it's not going anywhere. So that's an example of, you know, yep. kind of the life cycle of a slang term in Chinese. And I will say, John, that is a category one slang term for me. I, I, 2010 is when I moved to China. And I did. I started hearing that word. And I'm like, what is this? And, and it found me. And, and awesome. I, uh, and but, and yeah. you looked it up and it wasn't in the dictionary, right? Well, actually, since it became so popular, it wasn't in the dictionary at the time, but I was able to find it online and, and get an explanation of it. But I also, but I think even before I did that, I, I'd asked like a Chinese coworker, I'm like, what is this? You know, I, I'm seeing this everywhere. Yeah, it's actually two characters, which are quite simple as well. So it's pretty learner friendly. But I think this also brings up an important aspect about all of this slang is that it has a shelf life, if you will. Right there, there's a lot of these can be like fads that they come and they go real quick, and so that's I think is another aspect. If you really want to try to like learn slang and stay on top of it, well, even if you are really studious, your window of opportunity to use that word is may not be just be constricted to who you're speaking to, but also a very specific time frame. And it could be as little as just a couple of months. But remember, Jared, some of it does stick around. Like Gay Lee kind of really did join the ranks of real vocabulary. But some of it, five years later, no one even remembers it. And so one thing you can do is you can look up online, you know, top internet slang from 2015 or whatever. And you can see how, like, you know, ask your Chinese friend, your Chinese teacher, no one uses any of these words anymore. And they'll just, like, laugh because they're so weird and and obscure <laughs> but there will be a couple that are still around and on that note i'll give a quick shout out as well to uh slow chinese we had andrew methvin on our podcast a few episodes ago but yeah he does this he actually researches like the top slang that's going around on the internet and he publishes a weekly newsletter about it right so a lot of those terms will be around for the long haul or maybe they're kind of domain specific and then some of them won't be surprised if they're not around in a couple years uh, and frankly, I would I would venture to say it's going to be 90, 95% of these things aren't going to stick around. They're not going to have a long shelf life. It's just a few that really do stick around. But a lot of it's super interesting. So if you like linguistics, you like Chinese, still worth uh, reading about. Well, John, I got to say, I really do enjoy using slang when I can get it right. But I think also one of the big challenges is that, you know, I'm not in China anymore. And so you know, I don't have that opportunity to use slang all that often. And so, John, how often do you use 
slang in your everyday conversation? I don't know, fairly often, but I, I do kind of stick with the uh, the ones that I know are you know more well established. I don't go for the the vanguard slang or whatever, avant garde. The avant garde slang. All right, all right. Well, I appreciate that, homie. <laughs> all right, homeboy. Anyway, hopefully that's useful to you guys and you uh, you know slang heads. Slang heads. I think that's a new fad, John. Yeah, I'm trying hard here. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion, Chinese graded readers. These are easy to read Chinese stories, guys. You might have heard of them. Today we're talking about our level one graded reader, Sherlock Holmes and the Case of the Curly Haired Company. All right, so this is based on a Sherlock Holmes story, which is really about a redheaded league, but our story is about a curly haired company. This was a lot of fun to adapt this story. you know, it, we don't have redheads in China, but there are curly-haired people, and they're about as uncommon as redheads would be in the West in, in most areas. So this is a fun story. You only need 300 characters under your belt to be able to read, understand, and enjoy this story uh, because it is level one. And this is also one of our perennial favorites. It's one of our best-selling novels of all time. It's a great story. And there's also something really special about this one, which is it has a prequel in the breakthrough level, 150 characters. And then this is level one, which is 300 characters. And there's a level two Sherlock Holmes story coming. That's right. Believe it or not, guys, we are publishing a new book. Woo! All right. So our Sherlock, his name is Gao Ming, and we hope you guys really enjoy it. So the one that is level one is called Sherlock Holmes in the Case of the Curly Haired Company. So you can go out and get it today on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave, and it kind of starts with a rant almost. Like in, in Shanghai, when you live in one of these uh, high-rise apartment buildings, uh, you have all these neighbors on your floor, and it's kind of weird how people hardly even talk to their neighbors in Shanghai. Like everyone is so distant and like even your next door neighbor, you might never talk to him and that's normal. But here's the rave part with this whole lockdown thing where, you know, some people are running low on food and people are having problems. Like the whole building community has really come alive. Like everyone is joining these building WeChat groups. Everyone's communicating. People are dropping off food, whoever needs it. They're helping each other out. Uh, I'm not going to name any names or anything, but some of us are even conspiring to like, you know, figure out how to take our dogs out without doing anything dangerous and without getting (laughs) busted because who wants to make their dog (laughs) poop inside their apartment, right? So anyway, um, there's always a silver lining with these kinds of things. And um, it's really cool watching the uh, the Shanghai apartment communities come together. I know it's not just my building. I'm talking to other friends across the city and everyone's noticing the same thing. So that's kind of cool. That's really cool. That's really cool to hear, John, because, you know, I I definitely can relate that. uh, I think as you've said before, that Shanghai uh, apartment dwellers are notoriously not unneighborly, but they're just not connected, right, with one another. They're distant. Distant. That's a big good word. (laughs) That sounds really cool, though. A positive externality of the pandemic lockdown. Yes, there are a few. All right. So, Jared, how about you? Rant or rave? Uh, John, 
I have got a rant. And this has to do with the new Marvel show, Moon Knight. Now, in episode two, it's, it's so far, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. My, my family's uh, enjoying this, uh, this show. But in episode two, there is an atrocity. I mean, it is of galactic apport. Well, not galactic, but it's really bad, John. Okay, uh, they are s- purportedly speaking Chinese in one scene of episode two. Now, I've actually got it here, so le- let's listen to this, John. You ready? Oh, boy. Yes, I remember this scene. Chisalela Wakanida. Mihai Shukashuda. Oh, Mistingla, Jamela. Mistingla. You all speak Chinese? Uh, Mandarin. We all. Uh, Mandarin. <laughs> what was that? Oh my gosh, John. I, wh- wh- what, what is that? It's like the writers and the actors have never even heard Chinese before in their lives. Doesn't sound remotely like <laughs> What on earth? I mean, honestly, John, when I first I, I went back and I like listened to it like four or five times, like what, Me too, what, man. what just happened there? Me too. Yeah. And I, I was, I'm honestly, I'm first off, I, my impression was like, okay, maybe they're speaking like a dialect. I mean, you know, I would say we're a little more aware of that, so I wasn't ready to jump all the way head and head head first into a conclusion. But I mean, I went back and listened to it. I'm like. This is just bad. This well, this is I'm wrong. Pretty, I'm pretty sure Ni Hai is supposed to be Ni Hao, but that's about all I can get out of it. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So there are some Chinese subtitles that you can turn on, and evidently he's supposed to be saying like Ni uh, You know, it, it's they're like you know saying, well, let's let's, and evidently he's saying like let's fight together. I think is what some people are saying the translation is supposed to be. Anyway, it was just terrible. I'm like, this is this is an embarrassment. I mean, this is out by Marvel, who put out Shang Chi, right? I mean, that movie was like different like a team. fourth of it. it was like in Chinese. Different team working on this yeah. one. I, I, I was uh, I, I was like, this this just an embarrassment. I mean, they can't like, go back and like reshoot that at this point or anything. But Actually, th- th- this reminds me of um, an old episode of The Big Bang Theory where Sheldon was supposedly speaking fluent Chinese. And it's hilarious mm. because it's also bad, but it's just good enough that you can figure out what he's trying to say. I once wrote a blog post about it, but yeah, this one is not it's not on that level even. Yeah, I, I refuse to believe that somewhere along the production <laughs> of this episode that there wasn't some Chinese speaker uh, you know, who could have been involved or pulled in to at least provide some sort of level of uh, language coaching on this because like, it, it, even if they had just pronounced it horribly— you know, it would have been okay, but like it was like, hey, let's put this through Google Translate and you know, just read this. Well, I don't care what it sounds like, just read it. I gotta say, I'm disappointed in Ethan Hawke. Come on, Ethan. Come on. Seriously, I know he does, he puts a lot of effort into his roles, but uh, oh well. So okay, that's that's my rant, John. Uh, All right, and, it's a good uh, one. Good one. Nihai shakashu. My name is Kyle Anderson, and I'm a vice president of strategic programming at a company called Academic Programs International out of Austin, Texas. And I was a professor and administrator in American colleges and universities before that. And all along that time, I've been an author and a writer, translator, and doing some of my own poetry and fiction, too. All right, Kyle. Why did you start learning Chinese? 
two main reasons. One has to do with personal interest, and one has to do with a family connection. So my brother lived in, let me be more precise, it was, it was pre-1997, so he was in Hong Kong <laughs> at the time. Okay, okay. And uh, he was there for a couple of years, and I was in high school at the time, getting really interested in the Stoics and philosophy. And my father, he had a big library in our basement with all sorts of world classics. No Asian books, though, right? Nothing about Asian philosophy. My brother comes back from living in Hong Kong for a couple of years. He had heard, because we've been corresponding in letters to each other, found out that I was very interested in, in philosophy now. So he dropped a stack of books about Taoism in front of me. Hmm. I'd never heard of Taoism. I was 17. I said, okay, this is going to be the next stack of books I devour. And I just slowly went through the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, and I was just smitten. I loved it. It answered a lot of questions I had about life and reality and the contradictions of passivity and quietude and ambition and all of those things, right? So I became fascinated. That's when I started to get really interested in Chinese culture. So that's the familial connection. And then the personal one came when China started to get on the rise. This was early 2000s. And I was in all sorts of literature classes at university. We're talking about all of these world classics, these theories of literature and things like that. And I kept on thinking, where's the Chinese? Where's the Chinese? Or it's the oldest mm. continuous classical civilization <laughs> in the world. Debatably the most rich literary tradition, right? In the world as well. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where is it? And then I came across a book. And for any Sinophiles here that are listening, read anything by Zhang Longxi. He was a former Stanford professor. He mm. ended up in Hong Kong, but he wrote a book called The Tao and the Logos where he basically just compared mm. ancient Greco-Roman and Chinese philosophy and literature. Oh, and it was just awesome. I loved it. It built upon all the stuff that I had become fascinated through the books that my brother gave me. And that's when I realized that, oh, there are ways that you can make comparisons and think about these commonalities between Eastern and Western traditions. And so it's those two things. I said there was two factors, but there's an asterisk. I wanted a challenge. <laughs> I'm a person that's always up for a challenge. There we go. <laughs> I'd done a few European languages at the time, loved them, but I was kind of getting bored with them. <laughs> and I started to dabble in Chinese classes on the side as I was finishing my degree. How many languages have you learned at this stage? I think I've studied at least 10. I get this question a lot from people when they find out I know a few languages. So how many do you know? And I always say, well, the best way to answer that is how many I use daily. Right? <laughs> and so daily, I use about seven or eight. Wow, really? Right. In the morning, I read the news, but I read it in five languages because ah. right? I want to know what's going on. Wow. Also do a little bit of my own philosophy, spiritual study, and that's in Latin, in classical Chinese. And wow. So I'll read the Tao Te Ching and I'll read some Seneca. And sometimes the Bible in Latin, right? More mm -hmm. like medieval church Latin. And you pile those all together, and then it's, it runs into seven or eight. Well, what point did you say like, oh, wow, I'm good at learning languages? What point did you come to that realization? I mean, some people have that kind of self-awareness. I think it's usually other people <laughs> that tell you. Right? I had heard it enough that I'm like, yeah, you're right. This is a little easier for me. I wasn't in high school. I got to tell you, I took French classes and couldn't stand them, and I ended up dumping them and taking a civics class instead. That was more interesting to me. It wasn't until really till college age. I had spent some time in Europe, in Italy. I finally found out that when I let my love for learning about people and their culture and their civilization lead for me, 
then the language came naturally. Some people see the other way around. They're more linguistic. They're more just fascinated with the language itself. I'm not. For me, it was philosophy. That was the initial hook. With Italian, it was fascination with architecture, fascination with the visual arts, and then fascination with just who people were and I wanted to get to know them better. Right. So it's very human cultural reasons. And so I picked up Italian really quick. The Italian cities are a lot like North American cities where you have a lot of Latino populations. Mm, that oh, really? Are, um, have immigrated there. Met a lot of Latinos. And then I started to be able to pick up Spanish really quick. Oh, wow. And I had some friends that were like, I don't get it. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing in your spare time picking up Spanish? This doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, well, if you want to talk to people, don't you like, have to know their language? Like, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> like, I started to realize that, oh, maybe it's much more of a chore for people <laughs> than, than it is for me. It's still work, right? And yeah, I, I think yeah. everyone needs to hear that. When you ask me what languages I know, I didn't answer by saying I have this weird talent and I speak all of these. What my answer was is I do this every day. Mm-hmm. So I still got to do stuff, but I know that I probably have an aptitude for it. Yeah. Also about this then is like you really attract to Chinese through the channel of a philosophy, right? And some of the great thinkers and Chinese literature. But I didn't hear in your story there that, oh, there were these Chinese people or there may be some people I'm really trying to connect with. Here you're the Italian, the Spanish thing. I'm connecting with people. But now this is a little different. We're talking about literature, ideas, and philosophy. What was that actually like leap to say, okay, I'm going to learn Chinese and much less because I know when you're trying to read philosophy in Chinese, classical Chinese, that's a whole different <laughs> ballgame, right? What kind of happened there? I'm going to be honest with everybody. I hit a wall. So sure, I picked up for second year Chinese real quick. And then I hit a real wall because my literacy kept on increasing and growing because I would just read, 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 read and acquire characters. But I didn't have that motivation to really practice my speaking. Like I need people because I feed off their energy and I I learn from them. So I actually just said, I've got to go there. Mm. When I went there and started to meet people, well, there we go. Now I started to have my oral breakthroughs, my, you know, my Koyu breakthroughs where I started. Was this like a long term? Was this like, I'm just going for a week? (laughs) Okay. So here's the caveat because I know uh, the the CEO that I work for and everyone in the industry that I represent is going to hear this. (laughs) So this was during SARS and I knew that my study abroad is going to be China. These European languages, they're fine, but I really want to go to China. I got to make my breakthrough. SARS hit, they canceled the program. Mm. Now, I had already had a lot of international experience. I was headstrong and stubborn. I bought my own ticket and lived in Beijing on my own. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) With lower intermediate Chinese. (laughs) And literally, I was living at a a Chinese hostel. And back in the day, there's foreigner hostels and locals. Mm I shouldn't say this. No, that's okay. There's still hotels like like that today. (laughs) Just for anyone listening, like the Chinese regulations are when you go to a hotel, they have to scan your passport so they know where foreigners are staying. And not all hotels or hostels are set up to do that. So you foreigners can't stay there. So that's right. All right. Kick it off. (laughs) (laughs) But those are the best ones to stay in, man. If you're trying to learn Chinese and learn about China. But I was staying in one of those places near uh, I think it was called. But it was a smaller park, not one of the big parks in Beijing. And um, basically just living out of there. And I was doing the thing that people who have already learned a language know how to do. Once you've learned 
a couple of languages. It's like muscle memory for an athlete or a musician who learns other instruments or other sports. You kind of know how to acquire the next ones. And I'm like, okay, all I got to do is go talk to the dudes in the park, go talk to the guys in the taxis, go to the <laughs> merchants because they have to talk to you Yeah, because they're a captive audience for eight to 10 hours. Right? <laughs> and so that that's what I did. I, I made a friend who was an antique seller at the old Pearl Market. Oh, There's I, a new I remember that. Now. I've been they there. That's basically what I did. That and some sightseeing for a month on my own. And two or three weeks straight, I was just basically hanging out with the same merchant who were just talking about family and life and all that stuff. And that was my breakthrough. That was my immersion. I don't advise right, <laughs> that every student take on that kind of risk during a global pandemic. But I was someone who always had a high risk tolerance. This was that pivotal moment for me in my Chinese language learning. I knew if I wanted to do anything with it in my life professionally, I had a very small window before I graduated to kind of get that intermediate fluency. Well, what was that like, though? Most people's experience, first time coming to China, you're trying to struggle to say anything and like, these people speak so fast, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, surely you must have encountered experiences like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The formula to success is smile and laugh at yourself <laughs> in front of other people. And that softens everyone up and everyone's willing to work with you. So I think having that good sense of humor, a bit of humility and uh, ability to laugh at yourself and uh, people will, will work with you along the way. And the kind of things that people tell you to do, let's even say in your mother tongue, right? So one of the formulas to success, if you don't know what someone's talking about, ask them, mm. right? If someone uses a word you don't know, ask them. Right, Because that is your next step of learning. When someone use a word I didn't know, I'd say, what does that word mm. mean? Don't be afraid to say, hey, what does that mean? Or you said this. I don't quite mm -hmm. understand that. And then everyone circumlocutes and chooses a different way to say it. And then, then you get yeah, it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, what did you feel like you got out of that one month? That's not a long time, but it sounds like you were also very intensive. Confidence. Really? Confidence. That's what you got out of it. You know, every language learner knows that confidence tends to be that elephant in the room or that invisible gorilla blocking you from making it to the next level. And that could be just a lack of confidence in your speaking, could be shyness, it could be you don't want to look silly, right? It's all those blocks, all those psychological blocks we have. I also taught Chinese at universities, and one of the things I always tried to do was get students in an uncomfortable situation, not because I'm mean, but because they had to learn how to overcome their feelings of discomfort in order to thrive. Mm. Right? And so well, one of those truisms is the most successful people are those who fail the fastest, mm -hmm. right? not mm -hmm. those who succeed the fastest. They fail the fastest. Yeah, that's confidence is key. Well, where did you go from there? You spent a month in China, did your own study abroad. I mean, did anyone know about this? <laughs> No, the school didn't know about it, and there was no credit associated with it, so they didn't care. <laughs> to me, really, that tells me how important this was to you, right? Because I think a lot of individuals you know, may just say, oh, whatever. Now, I can't even equate that to our current COVID situation because you just simply can't get visas right now to even go if you, if you wanted to. But a lot of people just kind of given up. Oh, well, it's just not happening this year. But you charted your own course, right? I get an idea of what you're talking about. It impacted your confidence, and it definitely helped proficiency speaking. But what kind of course did that chart for you for your future learning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say if I hadn't done that on my own, yeah, the next 15 years of my life would have been different. How so? 
I went to grad school. I became a professor and an administrator and study abroad and then ended up where I am now with this company that supports study abroad and other high-impact practices around the world. I might have still done all of that, but Chinese wouldn't have been a part mm. of it. I really needed to feel like I could do this. I could speak the language. I could pick up a book. I could pick up a newspaper. I could make it part of my teaching and research agenda. If I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have had another opportunity in my undergrad to go to China. That was the window. It really did set the path for what I've done in the past 20 years, I'd say. But what are some of those key events or experiences you've had along the way? So I did my PhD at Penn State. Uh, what language, what languages was still up for grabs in grad school. One of my advisors was Taiwanese. He was actually a Shakespeare scholar in China. So he did the appropriation of Shakespeare in the Chinese-speaking world. He's really quite well known. He kept on encouraging me at the time to pursue it. But at that point, I felt intermediate, right? Solidly intermediate. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm not there. I only spent a month in Beijing. So what I did while I was a grad student is I applied for a few grants and I got them. And it allowed me to go to Taipei and to Taida, the national university, very well known in, in Asia. And they have what was at the time and what still is, I think, one of the best Mandarin language schools in the world. It was mm. set up by Stanford in the 70s. And everyone there is basically either from the State Department or from top 20 universities in the United States that are studying there. And it is intense, man. Really? <laughs> I don't know if you've known anyone who's gone to ICLP. Intense. And it's sort of the old Confucian method. There's a little bit of conversation, but you're having to read dozens of pages of academic Chinese, memorizing hundreds of technical terms. You have three or four classes that require you to do that. It was intense, but it was really good. Because everyone there was really good. And our teachers were fantastic, wonderful people. I, I looked up to them a ton. And then there was one teacher in particular. She was a little bit looser, more street Chinese. And I uh -huh. needed that. My academic Chinese was great, but I couldn't speak to anyone in the job shops. <laughs> like, uh, I, at one point, like I was just like, what is my problem? I can pick up this book and read it, right? But I can't have a three-minute conversation with this lady at the job shop. But uh, this instructor name was Delia Chow, right? Delia Chow. She's fantastic. She was one of these teachers that just wouldn't put up with you at all. She wouldn't take any crap from me. And so if I was misbehaving or being cheeky or whatever, she'd call me out in class. But she did, she did it in a really funny way. She taught me all sorts of colloquial phrases that I was always stopping and being like, what, what are you saying right now? Like the one I remember, <laughs> she would always say two things about me that says something about my personality. She'd be like, Ankaida. Uh -huh. <laughs> you think way too much because <laughs> I would always pester her with questions and she'd be like, look, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. Let's not get into it. And so she would always be like this. She'd be like, you think way too much. My favorite phrase that I learned from when I would persist, she'd finally just get exasperated, throw her hands up and say, I remember the first time I heard like, what does that mean? She's like, you're driving me crazy. And then the next phrase was my favorite. She said, Yao nong huai ni lao shi ma. You want to yeah. break your teacher? Do you want to make me quit my job? <laughs> so I love Delia Chow. I mean, I was in Beijing for a month before mm -hmm. that. But having that intense formal experience, again, living in the city, in a big city in Taipei by myself, having great teachers, 
that was really formative for me. I fell in love with the um, ethnic, religious, and linguistic diversity of Taiwan. It's a fascinating mm. island with rich history from European invasions to Polynesian inhabitation, right? 26 different like Polynesian tribes that have inhabited the center of that island for so long. And we made a lot of trips down into the center of the island to visit those canyons, one of our canyons and jungles and mountains where all the tea is made. So it's just a wonderful place. And I fell in love with the diversity. And I took that sort of view of Chinese civilization, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, writ large to the mainland when I went back. So when I was in Beijing that first time, I didn't know the difference between a Han and a Hui. It was just, I was in Beijing. That was, it was Beijing. What I learned from Taiwan is, oh, there's a lot more going on. Mm. And so when I went back to China, I got really interested in Southern China and the interior. So then that takes me to Guilin and Yang. And I would say that's when I was a teacher. So I'd become a professor of Chinese, started up a Chinese and Asian studies program at a small liberal arts college in Kentucky called Center College. It's not quite a national brand, but they're one of the top schools that does study abroad. 85% of their students study abroad and like half of them do it twice. And they brought me in to really root in a focus on Asia. When they hired me, there were a couple of historians who had taken some of the students to Shanghai and Xi'an and Beijing. Mm. <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle there, there of foreigners go. visiting China, <laughs> point, from Triangle. which we never emerged. You go see Beijing, Shanghai, and the Terracotta Warriors. They don't even remember Xi'an sometimes, right? <laughs> That's right. And the people that only do that always come back to me and say, yeah, I've done the China thing, checked. I'm not interested in going back. And I'm like, that's because you stayed in the Bermuda Triangle of China. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're really passionate about Chinese. They were going to go on their study abroad program in Shanghai. And we had some funds and they had some time. And so I said, you know, I'm afraid that you're just going to stay on the Bund, right? And you're going to stay in the center of Shanghai. You're going to go clubbing and you're not going to see anything else. So we're going to leave a week early before you go to your study abroad. And I'm going to take you to Yangshuang Guilin. So any Kung Fu movie or any movie yeah. you've ever seen, any fantasy movie, didn't have to be about <laughs> China. This is the, the beautiful southern areas of China with the beautiful Karsk Mountains and the mm -hmm. rivers. And I took them there. We biked through all these places. We ate the authentic food with roaches the size of your hand scurrying by your feet. I remember that was a, <laughs> we were doing hot It's a rite of passage <laughs> there. <laughs> I told a couple of the students, don't tell the girls in the group. Don't, don't tell them to look down. Don't look down. <laughs> uh, it was huge cockroach. You can just imagine. I'm not exaggerating. It was about the size oh, of my man. hand. So it was like coming across the floor and I was dying. And finally, one of the girls like noticed that I was trying too hard and look down and, and <laughs> yeah and you know we did the river boats and it was great they really appreciated it and so when they did their shanghai experience this gave them the confidence and permission to go back and they mm. did and they went and saw other places on their own why well because someone opened the door for them and so that was meaningful to me because the one thing i tried really hard to do as an instructor of chinese was to not take the easy route of just sharing the common touch points, mm -hmm. right? I really appreciate that. There's times where I've talked to people and it's like, oh, I've been to China. Oh, great. Where have you been? I'm like, I went, came to Shanghai or I went to Beijing. I'm like, you didn't see China. You saw Shanghai. <laughs> you saw Beijing, you know? <laughs> right. And, right. and it's amazing, you know, and you're staying in some five-star hotel and, you know, you're carted around every place to see all the amazing lights and everything, but, you know, you miss out 
on that little hole in the wall restaurant. You, you miss out on how people live their lives and a wet market and, you know, all these things that are core elements, I would say, of just normal Chinese life. Yeah, you, you miss out on a lot of that. Yeah, so that, that was meaningful to me. And, you know, even in all my classes, it's been 10 or 15 minutes talking about some aspect of Chinese culture that wasn't the norm. Could be anything from like Chinese heavy metal, right? To some Mongolian throat singing or something like that. Like it was just, it was something that I wanted them to see how rich this culture was because quite frankly, because of the way global politics and international relations and media coverage works, we only get a pretty, if we're lucky, mm-hmm. like dual faceted look at China. And it's just not fair to the Chinese. It's not fair to the rest of the world. So. I always hesitate to say China experts, right? But, you know, people like in your position, you're saying, hey, don't look at China as a monolithic entity. If you think we're American, right? America, we have 330 million people, but it's pretty diverse. You go from one corner to the other, you know, different mindsets, culture. But now you got China, 1.4 billion people. It's incredibly diverse. That's right. What makes you think that a nation four size the times of yours is going to have figured out how to be monolithic when you can't? It's complicated. But we all know we simplify things because it, it allows us to do certain things. It's not fair. I always tell my students, you know, everyone's striving to be more open-minded because you, you just want to learn things. I said, you know you're close when you afford someone who's different the same type of latitude and difference that you afford to yourself in your mm. own culture. Which is exactly what you said. We all accept the fact that Americans are at war about what it means to be American, how different people are, the different contributions of different minority groups and all of that. We allow that to exist. And when you finally reach the point where you allow the Chinese to have that sort of complexity, now you're Mm, in a good spot. That's a great perspective. The last one was when I finally got to go to Tibet. So Center College, we got a, a grant from an organization. It's called the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And we were trying to introduce our faculty to more things about Asia, right? So they could get into the curriculum and then our psychology classes, right? And our politics classes and our English classes could be more interesting and more diverse. So I said, oh, you know, I know Asia. Y'all, y'all come with me. We went on these faculty research trips through Asia. So how these are run is that each faculty has their expertise. So one was actually a well-known national ceramicist. Ceramicist, that ceramics? Yeah, ceramics. Yeah. Okay. So she, she actually was a well-known potter. I guess we call them potters. Or, uh, okay. All right. The other one was a, a well-known poet and mm-hmm. an English expert on English literature and Shakespeare. And then another one was an expert in politics, international politics. And then we had a well-known multicultural psychologist. So I said, okay, y'all want to go to Tibet? <laughs> I do. I've never been to Tibet. They said, yeah. And so we found out we could only go through the Chinese-approved tourist agency. And so we got all our visas through them. Obviously, we're fed. They allowed us to craft the itinerary a little bit with them, but it was pretty much a set itinerary. But we went to Shanghai first because the ceramicist wanted to do a lot of research in the Shanghai Museum. And then we went to Yunnan, where the beautiful scenery is as well that a lot of classical Chinese poets wrote about. That was for our English professor. And then the other two, we sort of followed their interests slowly along the southern border, up the plateau into Tibet to Lhasa. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had culture shock. Really? You had culture shock? Massive, massive culture shock. You've been around the world, spoke many languages. This page, you have culture (laughs) shock. (laughs) When you go from southern China 
to Tibet. It's incredible. I remember climbing the mountain in the van we were in, and all of a sudden, the entire world changed. This architecture completely changed, right? You, see, you know the light, ethereal, wooden, curved architecture of the Chinese, and all of a sudden, you are faced right with a block, a massive block, cement block, almost what we think of as like a business building in front of you. And that's a Tibetan architecture that's almost tiered and slanted in like a a Mayan temple, right? Like it was just, everything was so different. And then all of a sudden you see animals everywhere, colorful clothing, flags, right? And you have um, the pyramids everywhere. And it was just so, the contrast was so stark and almost so immediate, and it was fascinating. And then you smelled, the smells were different too because they mm-hmm. burned so much incense, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when we were in Lhasa, we got up in the morning and it was like constant, just wave after wave, plume after plume of burning pine juniper and all these smells. It was just so different. Wow. And it was good for me because I had only read and seen movies about Tibet and to talk to Tibetans see them struggle and not really want to speak Chinese to me for good reasons. They want to use the English because, you know, speaking Chinese meant something different to them than it did to me, right? Mm -hmm. A white guy from America speaking Chinese was a sign of privilege, right? Mm. A Tibetan speaking Chinese, it was forced upon them. So it meant something different to them. And, and just learning all of that, it was, it was, it was wonderful me, for me to experience that. So it sounds like you've had some really interesting experiences that Chinese, it's opened up some of these doors. How did you get into like doing some translation? So when I was finishing up my PhD, I met a visiting speaker who was out of California. I don't even remember his name anymore. He was the author who translated Hoja into English. And obviously, just like for a lot of us, watching or reading to live left a strong impression on us as a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature. And I got to spend some time talking with him and asked him the same exact question you asked me, like, well, how'd you get into this? Because you don't get any credit as an academic for translating Mm -hmm. for the most part. Nobody cares. It doesn't help you with your job. And he just said, nah, I kind of did it as a side project as an undergrad and a grad student. And I I really enjoyed it. Helped me with my Chinese, et cetera, et cetera. And so I said, yeah, well, I'm going to try this out. So what I started doing is just anytime there was an opportunity or someone asked, hey, can you translate this poem? It started out with poetry. Can you translate this? And I said, yeah. I did that for like four years, basically pro bono, everything. Mm. And then at some point, I obviously did something for somebody. And connected to a press in China, I found myself on a list of four or five different major presses in China. And so oh, wow. At that point, these chief editors would start sending me emails, hey, can you do this book? Can you do this book? And it was kind of a circuitous path because like I said, it started out with poetry for years. And then all of a sudden, there's presses in Beijing, Nanjing, and Shanghai, a lot of them that are geared towards children's literature and young adult literature. And they got a hold of me, and that's basically been like 80% of my work now. I'm kind of like the go-to for a ton of <laughs> children's and young adult fiction now. That's exciting. That's really cool. <laughs> but yeah, it took a while. It's, a, it's pro bono, pro bono, pro bono, pro bono until something happens, mm. right? No, that makes a lot of sense. So. What kind of advice would you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now? Start and then lead with your passions, your internal motivations, always. There's always going to be some test, some credential, right? Some program that you think is going to lead you to where you want to go. But I'll tell you, it was my experience as somebody 
who needed that internal motivation that even if you get those things that credential or pass that HSK six, or if you go to this, you know, the Tsinghua program or something like that, if it doesn't engage what you're interested in and your passion, I can't guarantee it, but I suspect you'll be disappointed mm. with your progress. Even you have to stay true to your motivations and follow those because they'll take you to the right places. And so you need to feed your motivations and mm. you need to feed your soul or else you're just going to give up. You said something about you need to focus on like kind of where you want to go right now. Looking back, so when you first started learning Chinese back when you're in college versus where you are now, how is where you are now the same or different than what you envisioned where you wanted to go or what you wanted to be back when you first started learning? It changes. Yeah, it changes. I don't think it negates what I said earlier about knowing your motivations because those change too. So for me, it was philosophy and literature to begin with. And then I realized that that only got me so far. So then became people right? Getting mm. to know people. That was big for me during my like Taiwan phase. And then teaching, right? I was really interested in bringing that joy and spark of interest to other people as an instructor. And then I found out at some point that I wanted more than just that one-on-one. -on -one. I wanted to do something that would have a bigger impact. And that's when I got into writing and authoring and translating. Because I said, you know what? As an academic, even if you write something cool, right? Really cool, earth shattering. You might have 20 or 30 people who read it. Mm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so I'd put in two years of work on this really cool project. It was basically about a wonderful book that was written in Europe in the 1600s about China. No one's ever heard of it, but it was a 600 page novel about the Chinese. It was really? fascinating. Interesting. I mean, Arthurian romance about Chinese knights and all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> wow. I spent years on that. It was great. A handful of people read it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like my side project that I was doing, I was editing the Tang Shir Sanbai Show, right? The 300 Tang Dynasty poems uh -huh. for all the elementary school kids in China. That's what I was doing. Wow. That's like a hundred million people. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So like that, that's what I realized. Like even the small things that seem insignificant to maybe the academics I was talking to, that's what started to jazz me. Oh, I want to do these things that a lot of people can gain something from. Well, Kyle, if people want to find more about what you're doing and some of these projects that you're working on, where can they go? So I have a website called Anderson Translation, but it's written in pinyin. So it's Anderson, A-N-D-E-S-E-N, -E -E translation. Anderson Translation. Ah, and uh, there's a tab there called new with an exclamation mark. Shinshu, new shoes, uh, new shoes, <laughs> <laughs> new shoes. There's my Chinese new books, new, new books. shoes, <laughs> new book. <laughs> so click on new and there's going to be two books there that are coming out this oh. year. One is with the Elin Press out of Nanjing. And that's a translation of a book by Xu Feng, a journalist. And he wrote a memoir of a World War II hero you have never heard of. Really? Chen Shoulin, a famous scientist who saved about a hundred innocent people from the Nazis while wow. she was studying abroad in Belgium. Wow. It's a fascinating story. It's, it's not my best work. That's not why I'm telling you. I'm just telling you because it's a great story in history that you need to know about. There's actually a television series about her. Oh, really? She's, she's in their cultural memory, contemporary cultural memory, but no one outside of China knows about her. Yeah. Then the other one. I have completed my first 
personal, what's called a middle grade fantasy fiction novel. Completed a novel and it's going to be published. Yeah. It's based on the famous classic of mountain and seas, that bestiary about wild. It's mm-hmm. a classical Chinese text about crazy wild beasts and creatures in this mythological world. And what I've done basically for anyone who's familiar with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or mm-hmm. any of these things where kids go into another world. I've basically written one where we have some Chinese-American kids from Brooklyn who find their way into this world of mythological beasts. But it's got some Chinese learning in it because all the creatures in it come straight out of the Shanghai Jing, oh, that, wow. that classical text. Now, now, just be clear, this book is in English, right? This book is in English. Both of these books that I'm telling you about are in English, yeah. One is my translation and one is my actual authored in an English book. My plan is to have it translated into Chinese. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to check out that book, you'll know where to go. And it sounds like you're always working on new things as well. So it's exciting to see some of the things you have coming down the pipeline. Thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. Well, Kyle, I really appreciate you taking this time with us, sharing your story and your experiences. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And good luck to all the listeners. Continue on your path. It's a fabulous, diverse place, China, and then wherever the Chinese end up to, which is all over the world in their particular cultures, keep studying, keep learning. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, tourists, gamer, marathoner, boxer, dissertation defender, pastor, footballer, translator, and that one gal named Rachel. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at ManorCompanion.com or tag us on social media, hashtag ManorCompanion. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guoa at SubChina, and interview editor is Dominic Ebsky. I'd like to thank our guest interview, Kyle Anderson, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.